are listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. I hope you're all staying safe and well wherever you are and however you may have been affected by the current pandemic outbreak. It's been a bit of a week, hasn't it? (laughs) I was thinking about what to say today on my intro and then I couldn't really think of anything because my brain is quite frankly fried by, I don't know, I think work and anxiety and general worry about what's going on in the world and not just what's happening now but the long-term implications of that um yeah it's all been a bit of an emotional week I think um and I don't know how you're getting on I hope you're all okay um I feel like times like this where there's a lot going on in the world there's bad stuff happening it's quite anxiety provoking and that these kind of anxious times can then trigger feelings of grief, whether they're recent or past, for all sorts of reasons, really. You might be, you know, it's one of those other big events where you might be thinking about, oh, well, how old would my child be now if they lived and what would I be doing them with them while we're stuck at home self-isolating? Or you might be feeling angry about all the people or the parents complaining about having to have their kids at home. Um, And I completely understand that it is a huge challenge to try and juggle homeschooling, having kids at home, maybe working as well. Um, And that is tough. But I think that there are probably a lot of you listening to this who would agree with me when I say you know, you want to make sure people are grateful that they actually have their kids and, you know, for that time that they can spend together as a family as well. Or maybe you've got an anniversary coming up. Maybe it's your child's birthday in the next few weeks, or it's just happened. Perhaps it's another anniversary that either you can't celebrate how you'd want to celebrate it, or it just kind of brings up some of those feelings of of grief and overwhelm. So I think we're all probably feeling a bit like this at the moment. (laughs) And I would love to hear of whatever strategies you've found to cope with it. Um, And I'll share with you a couple of the things that I've been trying to do um, on a daily basis um, to try and kind of help manage some of that anxiety and deal with the, well, the prospect of being home and pretty much in one place for... um, for quite a few weeks. Now I work at home, so I'm used to being home a lot of the time, but actually that means I really miss times when I'm not at home. Like, you know, when I first started working at home, I had the novelty value of always being at home and being able to wear your pajamas if you want. And, you know, all that kind of stuff, not having to commute, um, not having an office. And, you know, that novelty does wear off after a while. And I found it really important for my kind of my well-being to get out of the house a lot and see people, even if that's just people in the supermarket or catching up with friends for a coffee um, 
or you know seeing people friends and family at the weekend so I'm finding it pretty tough at the moment to get used to the idea that I won't be able to do that for a while anyway so these are some of the things that I'm trying to do to cope um number one is getting outside now I know we're limited in the UK if you're listening we're limited to one trip out a day to do exercise um but make the most of that trip and um, particularly if you don't have a garden um I'm very grateful and lucky that I do have a bit of a garden and I've been really enjoying doing some exercises in the garden this week um it's just helped me take a bit of a breath of fresh air do a bit of exercise which I think has helped me sleep better um and also we've had some gorgeous weather this week uh well in Yorkshire we have I can't speak for any other part of the UK but we've been so lucky I kind of feel like Maybe the weather gods are saying, oh, I know you're all miserable and stuck inside at the moment and there's lots of bad stuff going on here. Have some sun. So it's been really nice to have a few warmer days um, to get out and have a bit of a walk. The second thing I've been doing um, was a suggestion from a friend of mine, which I've picked up, which is practicing gratitude. So at the end of each day, um, actually, when I get into bed, I have a little notebook and a pen by the bed and I'm writing down three things which I'm grateful for in that particular day. And I find that this helps me reset my brain a bit before bed. And I find that if I go to bed and I'm feeling nervous and anxious, um, or I've got lots of stuff buzzing around my head, I find it really hard to get to sleep. And sort of writing down these three things has kind of really helped me focus on the positives that have gone on during the day and some of the good stuff and kind of switch my mind off for some of that more negative or destructive thoughts. Um, the other the other big thing for me, which I am still a work in progress on, um, but is not expecting too much of yourself. And I think this is particularly true if you have other stuff going on in your life. You know, if you've got elderly parents or grandparents you're worried about, if you've got kids at home who are trying to wrangle childcare and work and life and other stuff, there is only so much you can do. And I feel like in a pandemic, we should not be expected to work or operate or function as normal. So, you know, if you're not doing all the things that you want to be doing, um, you know, if you don't feel like you're taking advantage of all this free time, which you may not have, <laughs> or getting all the work done, all the books read, I don't know, all the cooking done and the freezer stocked up, don't beat yourself up about it because, you know, we're human, we have other stuff going on. And sometimes we just need to chill a bit and let ourselves have a bit of a break. Um, and that's a message for me as much as any of you, because I am pretty rubbish at that. Um, I'm also really struggling to read at the moment, which is unusual for me, um, because I love books. I normally read, you know, I'll read a book or two a week, and I've barely read anything for about three or four weeks now, which is weird, but I'm, I'm kind of going with it, rolling with it, and hoping my urge to read and comes back soon and then I can escape into some fantasy worlds yeah and you know I mentioned obviously we can't see each other and social interaction is really hard at the moment but video calling is amazing 
I mean, it's not the same as actually being there, but I had a chat with a friend of mine via video software on like at the end of last week and I felt so much better afterwards. So sometimes we just need a bit of pick me up from our friends. Um, so hop on a call to a friend, um, have a look at each other face to face, have a drinks party, have a pub quiz, <laughs> all these type of things. Um, get imaginative um, and do whatever you can to cheer yourself up. Okay, I think I have rambled on for far too long there, but um, genuinely, I hope you're doing okay. If you're not, please reach out to someone, feel free to reach out to me, post how you're managing to cope with self-isolation on Instagram and let me know how you're doing. Anyway, on to this week's interview. Today, I am talking to Lucy Burns um, about her son, Benedict, who died during labour. And in particular, one of the things which we spend a fair bit of time discussing is how Lucy and her husband broached Benedict's death with their daughter, who was, I think, three at the time he died, and how they supported her through that process of, you know, her coming to terms and understanding what had happened to her brother, and also then through Lucy's next pregnancy with Mary's little sister, um, and again, how they broached that topic with her and discussed it with her. Um, So I think this might be a really useful interview if, you know, if you have um, have a child and have recently suffered a loss or you're wondering how to talk to your children about um, the brother and sister that, that they may not be able to see. I hope you enjoy the interview. As always, um, if you enjoy the podcast, please do spread the word and share it on social media or whatever other platforms. I'm conscious that there are people, you know, the world doesn't stop just because we have a virus going. Babies are still being born and babies are still dying. Um, And particularly for parents who are bereaved at this time when so many of the support mechanisms we kind of maybe rely on in terms of face-to-face groups, you know, additional contact with mental health specialists, that kind of personal one-to-one touch is absent or not available. My heart really goes out to those people. And if any of you are listening, I hope that Perhaps the stories on this podcast make you feel a little bit less alone at this really difficult time. Okay, on with the interview. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Lucy Burns, mother to two girls, Mary and Willow, and one boy, Benedict, who died during labour in 2012. Welcome to the podcast, Lucy. Thank you. So we're going to talk a lot about Benedict today, but I wanted to start by going back to the beginning. When did you first decide that you wanted to have children? Oh, I mean, when I was still a child myself, I knew from a very, very early age that I wanted to be a mum. I um, I was nine when my eldest nephew was born and sort of just fell in love with him and, yeah, straight away knew. Um and when I was 20, before I was married, um, I was diagnosed with 
polycystic ovarian syndrome and pretty much told that that was going to cause an issue with fertility and um, so we, we sort of had to do quite a lot of searching at that time about whether or not we wanted to have children and if we did what we were prepared to do to have them basically. And so when how old were you when you decided that that you did want to go go ahead and have children did that kind of hasten your decision a bit knowing that you had PCOS? Yeah, it did. Um, I think probably we would have started trying relatively soon after we got married anyway. Um, But that that sort of made the decision that if potentially it was going to be a slightly longer process, the sooner we started, the better. Um, So the idea was that as as soon as we were married, we would we would start trying. We were married um, in 2006 and I was 22. And did you have to go through fertility treatment in the end for your pregnancies or were you able to conceive naturally? Um, With Mary, my eldest daughter, um, we did some some cycles with just metformin, which stabilised my blood sugars. um, And we were sort of uh, not having any luck. So then we did Clomid, which is the medication that helps you to ovulate, because they were concerned that maybe that was a problem. Um, I had very, very erratic cycles. Um, I had a couple of laparoscopies to try and have a look and see what was going on. And we were at the very last natural cycle when um, we then had to make the decision, are we going to go for IVF or are we going to go for adoption? And we found out that I was pregnant. So just in the nick of time. Gosh, that that must have been an amazing feeling, kind of a, a last minute miracle. Yeah, it was it was crazy. Um, and I had, I had, I had, I had been convinced I was pregnant and it was just coming up to Father's Day and I was thinking, oh, this is perfect timing. And I did a test and it came back negative. And I was absolutely gutted because I had, I was just so sure that I was pregnant. I had really felt it. Um, and then I, I went back to the bathroom a sort of an hour or so later and went to throw it away. And there was this line there and I was like, right, we've got to go and find like all the digital tests we can get our hands on, plus a bottle of wine, just in case. Um, and we did it and it was, it was, yeah, it was positive. So we knew very, very early. I think I was, I was only sort of a few weeks technically. Um, and, um, and yeah, but I, I just felt that was the very sort of first time I noticed how attuned I was to my body in terms of this sort of thing. And that sort of mother's instinct, I had absolutely known that I was pregnant and I knew straight away she was a girl as well. Wow. And I've ta- I've spoken to friends who've known that as well, like known the gender before they've even even found out. So how was your experience of being pregnant with Mary then? Um, it wasn't the easiest pregnancy. I had um, hyperemesis. So I was really, really not feeling my best. And um, psychologically, I found it very, very difficult. And there were lots of times when I was even questioning whether I could continue with the pregnancy, which was a huge shock for me because I had been so desperate to be pregnant. And then when it wasn't sort of the 
sunshine and flowers experience that I had expected it to be, I found that very difficult. Um, and um, there was a very, very short moment of a, a week or so when I think I sort of relaxed a little bit and I enjoyed it. But I was very... Um, I found it very difficult to be pregnant. I found it very hard. I, it sort of felt quite an unnatural process for me, actually, which was really odd. And was that in terms of the sort of physical symptoms or kind of emotionally and mentally? Because obviously when you're pregnant, you have all these hormones and all mm. these feelings and things. And, you know, even even in a pregnancy where you may not have experienced a loss, there's kind of anxieties there as well, potentially, depending on, you know, the kind of person you are, how your brain works and what all those chemicals are doing in your head. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely a worrier. I'm definitely a kind of, uh, you know, if one thing happens, then I'm already kind of like five miles down the road in the worst case scenario kind of area. Um and I think that's, I think in my first pregnancy, I was very much of the idea that I, I, I was preparing for the worst to happen, but I didn't actually think it would, if that makes any sense. Um, and um, I think it was probably both physical and emotional. It just wasn't quite what I had expected. And I, because I had known for such a long time I wanted to have children, because I sort of wanted to be a little bit of an earth mother, I was just really shocked that it didn't come naturally. Um, I, I, when that, when it was all when it was going well and in those evenings when I was lying in bed or lying in the bath and I had my hands on my stomach, that was lovely. That sort of connection to the baby was lovely. And we had quite a lot of scans um, just to keep monitoring her. From the very beginning, there was a problem because there was um, when I went for my very first scan, which was early because of the sickness and because I had had Clomid and they were checking to make sure whether it was twins or not, um, my dates didn't match up to what they saw on the screen. So they were like, you have to go away and come back in two weeks, which was just hell. And it turned out it was fine. And it was just the fact that my cycles were longer. But from that moment, I had quite a lot of extra scans just to keep checking on her. There was a worry of her, about her weight. She was she was measuring quite small at one point and then she suddenly measured quite big so there was quite a lot of extra appointments and I ha um, I needed the anti-d injections because I'm rhesus negative and all sorts of things like that so I was up at the hospital quite a lot um, and then all of a sudden my blood pressure started to rise and that's when it got quite interesting. How far along were you at that point? Um, about five months Okay. So still quite a way to go. Yeah. And I was very fortunate that I was working in a fantastic team and I was working for the NHS. So in a really good place. And I got lots of support and lots of advice. Um, but when someone tells you to calm down, it, that's just like it doesn't happen. And I and that had been really familiar to me when we were trying to fall pregnant and people would say, oh, you know, just as soon as you relax, it'll happen. And and then they were saying the same thing again during the pregnancy. I was like, I'm a little bit fed up with people telling me to relax, actually. Um, but I didn't respond to the medication quite as well as they thought that I should. And so by the time I got to 36, 35 weeks they were talking about um an early induction or possible cesarean 
And then we had a huge snowstorm and they were like, right, at this point, we really need to make sure we've got a plan in place. So they did an assessment and they said, oh, your blood pressure is really quite high at this point. I think we'll probably, you know, probably bring you in tomorrow to have the baby. And I was like, right, OK, this is this is a bit of a shock. This was just before 37 weeks. And then they checked me one last time and they said, oh, gosh, it's gone up even further. And I said, well, I, I know it has because you've told me I'm having a baby tomorrow. Um, it's not surprising, really. <laughs> I know. And so I ended up staying in that night and, and I was induced. And um, on paper, it was a it was quite a straightforward delivery. Um, but my understanding of it, my perception of it was that it wasn't particularly good and the same thing happened again during labor um and um I had wanted to be very active I had wanted to be on my feet and I was told that I had to have an epidural I had to be therefore on the bed and I was a bit unhappy about being told that my lovely birth pool I had wanted a home birth and that went out the window very early but I was getting further and further away from this kind of um ideal situation that I had in my head and I think I, I struggled with that um, and I st- they started the induction process and overnight it was fine but I stuck at four centimetres for a very long time and with the benefit of hindsight and two further deliveries I know that that's just what my body does but obviously at the time we didn't know um, so they broke my waters and then they gave me they put a drip up and they put the drip up at um just before five o'clock because we were listening to the radio and they were just about to, chris evans's uh drive time show is just about to start and it was the day that his wife had had a baby so i remember it quite vividly um and then mary was born within five minutes of the drip going up and so i went from five from four centimeters to her being there in five minutes and it was just crazy it was yeah looking back on it now it was so quick I don't think that the staff in the room really knew what was going on because it all happened so quickly where she moved down into the birth canal they lost her heartbeat which was being monitored so they were talking about a crash section then they examined me and said oh no look there's her head you just need to push but it was all just and I and I think that probably from their point of view that's the sort of thing that they might have seen quite a lot of times. But from my point of view, that wasn't the image I had in my head. And I was pretty out of it with medication as well. So I didn't really understand what was going on. It's so difficult, isn't it? I think with your first, I mean, it's your first experience of labour, of giving birth. And you you don't, on one hand, you don't know what to expect at all, because it's this big, scary thing. And on the other hand, you've got this idea of what you want it to be like. And there was, I mean, there are so, I mean, I think probably the proportion of people whose birth plan goes to how they imagine it or how they want it to be like must be minuscule because, you know, I think happens, but it doesn't make it any easier. And interestingly, I had a similar thing 
when I gave birth to Sky in that I was like, God, how long are these contractions going on for? You know, it's getting really mm. painful. I'm like, well, can you examine me and tell me how far I am along? And she was, she's like, oh, you're only two centimeters. So I was like, two centimeters? Are you joking? And literally she was born 45 <laughs> minutes later. It was like, <laughs> I think the yeah, midwife yeah. gone out for yeah. ages. And, yeah. and then I was like, no, you've got to get her back in now. It's like, I can feel her coming. <laughs> yeah. And I heard... I had sort of spent my entire pregnancy and even before then watching every single program about childbirth. And there used to be like a cable channel that was pretty much wall to wall programs about giving birth and twins and all of these different things. And I watched them obsessively. And and so I thought I kind of had an idea of what it was going to be like. And I was pretty chill and I was going to roll with what was going on. And it was just, it, it was, it was quite, it ended up being quite scary, really, because of the fact that, that they were questioning her heart rate, because of the fact that um, I wasn't responding particularly well to, to what they were saying. Um, I ha- I lost a lot of blood and all of that kind of stuff. So in that moment, it was terrifying and I felt really alone and I felt really vulnerable and I felt really like this was something that was just happening to me and that I didn't have any involvement in it whatsoever and I found that very very challenging and I could hear you know my mum and my sister were outside the room and being told they couldn't come in and and I and I thought well you know this is this is not obvious this isn't just me feeling that there's a problem this obviously is something more significant and, you know, she was absolutely fine. She didn't need any care after she was born at all. I just needed a few stitches and I was fine. So very quickly after she was born, we had that, you know, lovely, happy time. And it it sort of went well. But in that moment and my memories of that moment, it was just really quite scary. And... I pretty much decided that we weren't going to have any more children just because it hadn't been the process that I thought it was going to be. And actually, so my my next question was, um, how did your experience with Mary, both your pregnancy and delivery, how Mm. did that make you feel when you got pregnant with Benedict? Um, Well, I mean, in between, I had, I had, there was a lot of, a lot of discussion my husband and I about whether or not we would have any more and I had always said I wanted a big family um and that changed very quickly when she was born um but um I'm very very close to my siblings and he's very close to his brother so we wanted her to experience that so we had a little bit of support we saw Um, a midwife and a consultant at the hospital for a debrief and um, I also had a little bit of counselling I think it was probably something like you know sort of post-traumatic stress um, or something because there were lots of flashbacks um, to what happened Um, and once I started talking about my fears and processing it it started to get a little bit easier and we decided that you know Mary was so wonderful that we wanted to try and do it all again and 
fell pregnant very, very quickly. I think we made the decision and fell pregnant naturally within a couple of months. And I, I felt like that was a bit of a sign that this was a different experience. It hadn't been the same. It hadn't been so medical to fall pregnant. And, and so I sort of took that as a sign that this was going to be a different experience. And it was actually the the pregnancy with Benedict was much more straightforward. Again, I had a lot of scans because they wanted to monitor both him and, and me in case the preeclampsia reoccurred. Um, and apart from a few bits of sort of bleeding throughout um, the early days of the pregnancy, um, it was smooth sailing all the way through. And I loved being pregnant that time. Absolutely loved it. So my mindset was so much more positive. That's really interesting. And I'm glad I'm glad you had that time to bond with him, I guess, mm, in terms of yeah. you know being, being able to enjoy that pregnancy um, and not just kind of waiting for it to be over and, and baby to come out. So moving on to that, my so my own experience with stillbirth and that a lot of my previous guests has been that we found out our babies died and we've then been induced to give birth. But Benedict's story is different as yeah. I believe he died during labor. So you'd reached the end of your pregnancy, which was a yeah. good pregnancy. You were feeling mm-hmm. positive, expecting to meet your healthy baby boy in just a few hours. Um, and I know this must be incredibly difficult, but would you be able to maybe talk us through what happened, perhaps from the time you went into labor? Sure. Um, so uh, the, the first contractions I noticed were in church on Easter Sunday during the service. And it just felt very appropriate, you know, sort of newborn lambs springing all over the place and uh, new life. And we were going back to my mum's for a lovely roast lamb and all of that kind of stuff. So we did a little bit of monitoring of contractions and it was still very, very early. So we were quite happy that we could, you know, have our roast and everything would still be okay. Um, We tipped my mum the wink that she might have to be on call with Meredith if I went into sort of more active labour. And um, the plan was that I would give birth at the local birthing centre at Maidstone Hospital. Um, So we sort of toddled up there, um, I think at about 11.30 that night. And everything was fine. They did all the observations. It was all okay. Um, I wasn't in established labour, so they suggested I go home and sort of wait out the early stages at home where it was a bit more comfortable and make my way in. There was a bit of confusion because on my most recent blood tests they had, it showed that I had very, very low iron levels and they thought that I would probably have to deliver at the main hospital where it was consultant-led rather than in the midwife team. Um, which I was really disappointed about because, again, I sort of wanted, you know, my second chance at having a lovely water birthy type thing. But um, I was quite pragmatic and I sort of realised that what I wanted was just everybody to be okay. And I had realised from my experiences with Mary that it doesn't always go to plan, but you know, it it, it works itself out. So went home and I was in labour, contracting at home and sort of monitoring the contractions and again went up to the birth centre that night. So this was the Monday night around about midnight and when they did the observations, they couldn't find a heartbeat. 
and they asked me when I had last felt him move and I didn't know. And because, of course, only a doctor can confirm if the baby has died and there was no doctor there, they very carefully suggested that I needed to get over to the main hospital and um, I was blue lighted over to Pembury Hospital and I was making full use of the gas and air to try and distance myself from what was happening and I was in a very strange headspace of thinking that he had probably died but desperately hoping that he hadn't um and by the time I got there um I had gone into the gone into active labor we were he was he was sort of ready so they didn't get a chance to scan me um before I started pushing so he was delivered without um it being confirmed that he had died and therefore they did their 15 minute standard recess um and as I'm sure you will remember when you deliver a baby and it's quiet there is there is you know there's a very strong message in your body that it's not right um and throughout those 15 minutes I was I was fairly sure that he you know he wasn't there was no miracle um going to happen and wanting to to tell them to stop and to sort of leave him alone really because he was so tiny and it's a big thing for um you know life support on a baby um but I couldn't quite bring myself because I couldn't make that decision you know I couldn't say stop just in case there was that chance um and um we were with a friend of mine who was a midwife who was acting sort of as a uh, a doula for me to try and support me because of what had happened with Meredith and she had seen him when he was first born and she she did say to us you know you need to prepare yourself that this isn't going to be good news um and I went into practical mode and, and told my husband to start making some phone calls. So he he actually went out before we had been given a, a confirmation. Um, and so the first time that he heard was when he heard my reaction to being told, which I think is... Um, is a reaction that many people listening might be familiar with that you you're looking around for who's making that ridiculous noise and then you realize it's you and um and so that's that's how he realized was when he heard me which I I feel really awful for because it shouldn't have been like that you know I you do what you do in the moment and sort of hope that it's right um but looking back on it, I'd like to change that. I think it's so hard, though, because I'm sure that even though even though maybe your brain knew that mm. he was gone, and even though you'd been told to prepare for you, that there's, there is always going to be that tiny bit 
within you that hopes it's not the case and is like praying for that miracle. Yeah. And I think it's only once you're, you know, once you're literally told those words by the doctor that 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 part of you just breaks. And Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've spoken to people a lot about it before and sometimes the midwives can't find the heartbeat when there's, you know, lots of movement going on and, he you know he might have just sort of moved position and things like that so of course they can't tell you what they don't know for sure um and every now and then I sort of think to myself oh should I should they have just said earlier that I needed to sort of prepare myself for bad news it's really difficult uh to say but I think that um one thing that really struck me was how affected the staff were which I wasn't prepared for and one of the team who was doing recess had to be swapped out for another member of the team she needed to go and compose herself because she was getting so upset um and I think that sort of really made that that really helped because it, it made me feel like they were they were trying as hard as they could and they were praying as much as they could in the same way that I was. It, it made it feel very much more personal rather than just sort of this medical thing that's happened that they have to do as part of their job. Um, and in fact, we can't fault the care that we had um, at either the birth centre or at the hospital. Everybody was amazing. And and I'm sure that they were also holding on to that bit of hope, even though they might have, you know, they might have known that they weren't able to find a heartbeat. And, and that's why you've been rushed to the hospital. I'm sure they were hoping that they could work that miracle for you and, and bring him back. Did yeah. you find out what had happened to him? Um, we we didn't get a definitive answer we decided that we wouldn't have um, we wouldn't do a post-mortem actually because um i think we knew that it was unlikely that we would get an answer he looked he looked perfect um he was perfect yeah. and we thought that actually um getting a definitive answer probably wouldn't make us feel any better um the only um the only concern that we had was if it was in some way um, a genetic issue that might impact on Meredith. Um, I don't think we were thinking about more children at that stage. I think we were just thinking about her. Um, but we were told that there's almost nothing that it could have been that wouldn't have already shown up with Mary. She was three at that point. Um, so we decided not to. And they just did some um, skin cell samples and some blood tests for me. Um, and there was no definitive answer. He was quite, he was quite small. Um, he was five pounds eight, which was the same weight that he had been when he had been scanned at 36 weeks. Um, and potentially if we had had another scan in between and they had noticed that there was no weight gain, they might have questioned whether 
perhaps he wasn't getting the nutrient supply that he needed and, and they could have done something. Um, but it's likely that it was just that, so the, um, the cord had, was knotted and it was called a true knot. And I've not ever really been able to get a definitive answer as to what is a true knot and why it's different from a regular knot. Um, but I think it was just a case that as, as I dilated and he moved down, it pulled the knot in the cord tightly and and that was it so they estimated that he had died um a few hours before he was born um probably around the time that we were leaving home to go up to the birth center so just a few yeah just a few hours that must have been heartbreaking and thank you for sharing that because it is a really I mean, all these, all the stories are difficult to hear, but yeah. it is, it is a difficult story to tell, I'm sure. And I would like to talk about Mary a bit, actually, for a while, because she was three at this point, and she mm. must have been so excited to meet her little brother. Yeah. How, how did you tell her? So, actually, the only, um, the only thing that we were concerned about was was her, really. Um, and we stayed um, at Pembury Hospital. They have the fantastic Hope Butler Suite, which is the Sands Bereavement Suite, um, just to one end of the delivery suite, which is named for Hope Butler, um, who um, who was um, very sadly stillborn. Um, and in the suite, they have lots of leaflets and, and advice from the local Sands group. And the only one that we, went, that we read was how to tell a sibling. And it said, you know, no euphemisms, no sort of softly, softly approach because children just don't, they don't get it. So as simple and as straightforward as possible. So we sort of abdicated responsibility of telling most people um, once my um, husband had called his mum and my mum, they then spread the word amongst our family and friends. Um, and we were in hospital for a few days and that allowed um, some close family to come and, and meet him. And we made the decision that Meredith wouldn't come to the hospital and meet him. And when we then went to collect her from my sister's, we just sat down and we we said, you know, he's not going to come home because he died. And she sat there for a few seconds and then she said, OK, that's sad. And I said, yes, it was. It was very sad and that mummy and daddy and everybody around her would be quite sad for a little while. And then she went off and carried on playing with her puzzle and that was sort of it. And every now and then, every couple of days, she'd come up with a few questions and she'd ask us for a little bit more information. And so she really kind of led the process and we just followed her lead. And from the beginning, she just accepted it as a fact of life, which was actually quite a therapeutic way of, of doing it for us. I think it was really helpful. Um, and if we went anywhere and, and people talked about having more children, she would flat out say oh no I've got a brother he's in heaven and then you'd watch their faces kind of contort into all sorts of weird and wonderful shapes um but she she has you know been very very proud of the fact that she was a big sister even though he wasn't there and even though she I mean she really had been looking forward to it so much my 
niece was born about six months before Benedict. So she'd sort of been practicing on her on her cousin and she was planning all of the things that she was going to do with her brother and whenever we whenever I went to my midwife appointment we'd put the Doppler on her and see if we could find her baby's heartbeat she was really involved in the process and we were we were really concerned about how she was going to take it um and we did a bit of um counselling and organised some support for her as well just because we thought you know if there's one time in your life where you have to really make the effort to do things as well as possible it's this time and um, and she's been she's been I think at times the only thing that kept us going we were very conscious of the fact that we were privileged enough to already have a child and to not be invisible parents, we, you know, we were able to celebrate Mother's Day and Father's Day and talk about our experiences of having children because she was already there and that protected us a lot in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, she she talked about her invisible brother quite a lot, which threw me a bit. But, um, you know, she has always talked about him. She still does. She's very proud to talk about having a brother and a sister. Um, and I think she, as she grew up, she grew into an understanding of what had happened. And as she started ans- asking more questions over the last nearly eight years, we have matched the questions with slightly more mature responses. Um, she's very angry with us that she didn't get a chance to meet him. But I think she does understand why we made the decision. Um, and um, seeing her sitting and talking to her baby sister about their brother. And, you know, it's it's just one of the, the things that I'm most proud of is the way that she responded to it. That sounds like amazing. Uh, like you did an amazing job. And it, it, I mean, it's an impossible situation, isn't it? I don't know, even know how you approach that. And thank you for talking about it, because I'm sure, you know, there are other parents who have been in a similar situation or may end up in a similar situation. Mm. And I just wanted to go back a bit to talk about your grief, because, you know, in those first few days and weeks, the grief is so overwhelming. How yeah. did you cope with that while trying to keep life going for Mary? I think the, f- the fact that we had to keep going was was the big key for us. You know, we had a routine. Um, my husband had a week or so off work, and then and then he he found it very beneficial to go back to work and try and um, sort of stay in his routine. And we needed to do that anyway for Meredith. And when I got her to nursery, I would then go home and I would sort of crumple at that stage. Um, and I very quickly realised that actually I needed to let her see me crumple every now and then because I needed her to see that I wasn't OK again and that, you know, things would be OK. But I hadn't been, you know, I hadn't forgotten about him. Um, so every now and then we'd have a little cry together and every now and then she would tell me she missed him. And I would say I missed him, too. I was very, very lucky that I have um, some amazing friends and family who supported me through the experience. Um, My husband and I, although we've now separated, at the time we were 
completely in agreement. I think probably the only time we were ever in agreement in our relationship was when we were talking about Benedict and we would sort of take it in turns to have a little meltdown and support the other one. And it just seemed to work really naturally. We very quickly um, made decisions in terms of the funeral and things. It was all really instinctive. And even um, choosing his name and choosing our daughter's names were just it was a nightmare but choosing his name it all seemed to be so much easier and I I think it I I think there was you know some sort of guiding hand possibly possibly him sort of helping us through it Um, but I can certainly remember those days of just sitting there staring at a wall and before I knew it it was about three hours later and it was time to go and get Mary from nursery it just was a blur and I you know that sort of look that you have in your eyes where you're off in a dream world I think there were times when when both of us did that and the other person was able to sort of recognize what was happening and sort of bring them back to reality um and um and we just we talked about him as much as we could we went to sans meetings I said his name as much as I would shoehorn it into conversations because having had the experience of having Meredith and being so proud and wanting to show baby pictures and tell everybody about her, I wanted to do the same for him. And I I sort of felt like he deserved that. He didn't deserve to be hidden away. And I didn't want to, you know, people to think that I had forgotten. So I really was like, you know, I was like, does anyone want to see a photo? And people would sit there going, oh, hang on. I'm, I'm not sure that's that's normal, is it? Um, but I was desperate to kind of mirror the experiences with Meredith as much as I could, I think. And when you were pregnant with your second daughter, Willow, um, who was born, I think, about two years after Benedict, how was Mary during your pregnancy then? Did she? Did you pick up that she had any concerns that, that Willow might not come home? How did you talk about it with her? She was um, She was a little bit anxious. She was at school by the by, just around about the time that I found out I was pregnant, she was starting school. And so she sort of didn't see the day-to-day stuff as much. And I think that that was probably quite useful. We tried to sort of hide it from, from everybody really, just because it was, you know, it felt like a piece of, of glass. The pregnancy felt so vulnerable that we needed to kind of protect it. Um, she did say a few times, you know, will this baby come home or will this baby go to heaven? And I just had to be, you know, really honest. My, my, my philosophy, our philosophy all the way through was that she could cope. If she could ask the question, she could cope with the answer. As long as we were sensible about the way that we talked to her. Um, so we did say we don't necessarily know if she's going to come home. We just really, really hope that she does. Well, we didn't actually know she was a girl, but um, so we called her Pip. She was Pip all the way through. And um, yeah, it was it was really scary. But I, again, I think it was quite therapeutic for us because we voiced our own concerns that we weren't sure if Pip was going to come home or not. And we wanted to try and enjoy the pregnancy. And again, I, you know, I almost sort of forced myself at times to 
to experience that pregnancy in similar ways that I had tried to enjoy my previous pregnancies because I didn't want her to be born and there'd be no bump pictures. And I was conscious that if she didn't come home, um, I wanted to have had that bond with her. I wanted to have those happy memories that I had with Benedict that are so important to us. Um, and I know that throughout the pregnancy, I said, I said, if she comes home and people would always say, oh, no, when she comes home. And I was like, no, 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 I'm, I need to stick with if for the time being, just so I can get get over it. Because once those rose tinted glasses come off, you can't put them back on again. You know, you can't go, you can't lose a baby and then just think that everything's going to be OK the next time because you've seen what it's like. Yeah, and I think that perhaps people people don't understand that it's it's not you being negative, it's you putting things in place for you to be able to cope with this situation mm-hmm. and to deal with it, you know, in the best way for you. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's, you know, I was really conscious of the fact, you know, when you're pregnant, you prepare yourself you know, your body prepares physically, you prepare the home, you you know, you put all of these things in place, but you don't prepare yourself mentally. Either way, for you to bring home a baby or not is a huge mental, you know, change. And I don't think that that support is there. I, I, I don't think, you know, we, we did um, NHS birthing classes when we were pregnant with Meredith and we had an entire session on cot death. But there was not one word about miscarriage or stillbirth. It's like if you don't say it, it doesn't happen. And, you know, once we once we lost Benedict and we at that time, it was one in 17 pregnancies that ended um, in death. We were just amazed that in this country, in this day and age, that there were that many baby losses and nobody seemed to be talking about it, you know, it was because they were sort of protecting pregnant women from the possibility that it might happen. And I think that that's not a particularly healthy policy to have. It's something that I'm now in, involved in in our local SANS group. And it's something that we wrestle with. How much do we say to pregnant women this might happen or is that is that too much for them to hear? But is it useful for them to hit? You know, it's a, it's a really big um, sort of uh, hot potato issue. Um, but once I, as, as I said, once I had experienced one baby loss, it was almost as if inevitably there was going to be more and I was going to lose her as well. And even when she came home, I was fairly sure that something would happen. Um, I think after Benedict died... I would probably check on Meredith two or three times a night to make sure she was still breathing. And I had never even thought of doing that beforehand. But as I, yeah, you, you realize that this, the worst case scenario sometimes isn't just in your head. And I think that that sort of um, opened up a little bit of a can of worms for me. And when I had counseling, I had to do quite a lot to remind myself that, she had survived three and a half years and she was pretty healthy and she probably would be okay and might get a better night's sleep if I didn't go in and poke her every couple of hours. Did you have any counselling while you were pregnant with Willow? 
no, not not sort of um, structured counselling. I'm very, very lucky that my sister is actually um, a counsellor um, and definitely is a is a great listening ear. Um, and she was very, very good at sort of helping me to um, get a little bit more of a rational perspective on the situation. Um, and um, I was very, very lucky that where I was working, they were very supportive and they understood that I would need a lot more sort of scans and appointments. Um, the team at the hospital were wonderful and they um, they offered me scans as frequently as I wanted them. And I had to sort of exercise a lot of self-restraint, not to just permanently camp out in their department. Um and um and i think all of those all of those factors together and again having meredith there having to stick to a routine and having to sort of be a little bit normal in front of her was probably quite a, a useful thing for me as well you mentioned that you found your lo- local sans group quite early on um could you tell us a bit about how sans helped you during um, you know your grieving process and also a bit about what you've done in Benedict's memory for Sands and how you've helped other bereaved parents. Yeah so I think we went along probably about two or three weeks after um, at the end of the at the end of that month um, and I just needed to see um, that he that I would survive. I needed to see that other people had experienced it and weren't sort of a quivering heap of emotions in the corner of the room because that's how I felt most of the time. Um, So, yeah, I wanted to see that it was survivable and I wanted to see that um, I was going to be able to get through it. I think they were the the light at the end of my tunnel. Um, And I walked in and there was a group of, they were all couples actually, um, and it was just, it was like sort of being wrapped up in a hug. It was amazing because I didn't have to caveat everything I said. They just understood. They just knew. So, you know, there was sort of a little bit of awkward laughter every now and then. And I was sort of looking around as if to, to kind of almost like I had to excuse the fact that I was laughing and they were like, no, you know, it, it's OK. You know, our babies have died, but we're still allowed to smile. We're still allowed to worry about really inconsequential things. We're still allowed to be normal human beings. It's just this new normal that you have. Um, and that was, you know, that was really incredibly useful. Um and um, I went along to Sands for quite a while, actually, as long as I could. It was a, it was really important um, to me to sort of protect my um, time to to think about him, really, and to sort of um, almost kind of embed myself in in staying with him, um, and. Um, I think Willow was about six months when I decided that I wanted to try and support other people and that I felt mentally strong enough to do that, that I had sort of processed as much as I could what had happened with Benedict and um, 
and then going on to have another pregnancy. Um, and so I, I sort of decided that I would like to to try and, and do something. And I went and I did my SANS uh, befriender training. And I've been um, a befriender with SANS since then. So that's um, five and a half five and a half years um I've been on the committee as the hospital liaison and also doing their sort of social media stuff um and uh raising money I think at the at the last count um it was probably about six and a half thousand pounds that we've raised in his name and we do stuff every now and then um Again, it's just one of those things I loved. I love sitting and talking about him as much as it's really emotional sometimes because I talk about my girls all the time. You know, I'm an incredibly uh, vocal and proud mum and and he deserves the same that they have. Um, so um, doing something in his name is really, really important. And he, you know, he losing him and his pregnancy had such a profound effect on me, probably more than any of the experiences I've been through um, for the rest of my life. Um, that it's sort of, it's it's right that he still is in my thoughts and, and I devote some time, a little bit of time a month to doing something in his honour because um, I feel like he's given me so much. And that was that was actually going to be my final question, which you've just talked <laughs> on then. I think we often talk about like our lives before loss and after loss, yeah. and not just in terms of the grief and sense of someone being missing in our lives, but also how it changes us as people. Mm. So how how do you feel that Benedict has changed you and your life has been different since giving birth to him? Um, I think I care a little bit less about what other people think about me, which is huge because I really did before. Um, and I realised that sometimes I wanted to talk about him and I didn't really care if it made other people feel a little bit uncomfortable because it was important to me. And then sometimes people would ask me, oh, you know, people would sort of say, oh, you've got two girls, I bet you're glad you don't have a boy and all the mud and dirt and things. And I... And I would sit there and I think, actually, do you know what? I'm not going to let you get away with a a really sexist and b really thoughtless comment about my life, my children, my family. So I'm going to let you know how painful it was for me to hear that. And if it's painful for you to hear it, then it might make you think again. And and it sort of gave me a little bit of confidence in that area. Um, I've definitely done things that I didn't think that I would be able to. I'm um, I'm back at university and I'm studying and and all the time he's with me and and it sounds a little bit sort of cliched but every time I'm talking to patients about this tremendous thing that they've gone through I've got that little bit of insight and it's a very very different area that I'm that I'm studying but I know what it's like to have something happen to you to feel out of control, to feel powerless, to feel um, like, you know, doctors and nurses and medical professionals are coming in and just doing things to you without you really being involved in it. And how important it is 
to have that control and how important it is to to be able to talk about your experiences and to start to sort of accept what's happened and adjust to this new normal that you find yourself in this new life that you have um, and and sort of try and frame things in a way that they are a little bit more positive you know awful awful things happen they do and I don't think there's anything worse than losing a child but if you can take something that's really awful and find positives from it then that sort of protects you I think from anything else that's bad that might happen to you you know I have been through the worst thing that's ever going to happen to me in my life and I've survived it and I'm not just surviving but I'm really living and I'm having a great life and the girls and I you know I look at my future and and yes absolutely it would be better if he was here with us but I'm not going to let the fact that he's not stop me from having an amazing life and having fantastic times with my children with the rest of my family Um, and I think that that's you know that's all his legacy the fundraising and and supporting other people you know all of the things that I do with Sands are there and they're really really important but I think the most profound change um, has been just in me and and sort of changing the way I think about things and allowing myself to be a bit more confident and to be a bit more vocal and to sort of stick two fingers up at anybody that doesn't really you know like what I'm doing and I think that's a great point at which to wrap up (laughs) would you like to tell people where they can find and connect with you online yeah I'm on Instagram I'm um poke salad Lucy and that's uh, Lucy with an IE great I will include that link in the show notes thank you so much for coming on thank you Alison thank you for listening to this episode of footprints on our hearts Please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts and Twitter at Sky's Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com. <laughs>